Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Andrei Larionov. I am a senior fellow uh, at the Center for Global Limited and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. Um, today uh, at the Policy Forum, we have a topic, uh, the rule of law in Russia. Though the topic is the rule of law, there is a serious doubt uh, on whether the very term, the rule of law, can be applied to the current state of legal affairs uh, in this country. And uh, there is enormous amount of evidence and information saying that probably we're dealing with something different. In a traditional dichotomy uh, existing in legal literature, rule, the rule of law versus a rule of men, it is clearly that uh, the current Russian situation does not fit neither of these uh, definitions. So one of the questions that could be raised uh, today at today's so-called hearings is what would be the appropriate name and appropriate uh, title for the state of legal affairs in Russia. Another interesting observation is uh, as follows. If there is any law uh, does work in Russia for a number of decades in historical record, uh, it's it could be called as a law of unintended consequences at least in application to the position of the leader of the country who has received a legal, edu legal education. So we can say that in five cases over the last century, uh, the leader of the Russia with uh, education in law has contributed, all of them have contributed enormously to destruction of law in Russia. In two cases of Mr. Alexander Kerensky and Mr. Mikhail Gorbachev, it led to dissolution of the very country. In three other cases, Vladimir Lenin, Vladimir Putin, and Dmitry Medvedev, it led to enormous deterioration of rule of law, a state of law, or very law itself. So the question arises, what would be the appropriate balance between political power and law in such country like Russia. Over the last 15 years, uh, Russia happened to be in a group of uh, countries, according to international uh, comparisons, where rule of law suffered most, along with such countries and such notorious regimes like Tajikistan, Belarus, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Solomon Islands, Gambia, and Nepal. This is another G8. And um, um, and we have today uh, uh, probably uh, hardly we could have hardly better witnesses on this uh, particular case, case of the state of law in Russia. We have uh, Karina Maskalenka and Robert Amsterdam. Karina Maskalenka uh, is a um, uh, Russian most effective and courageous human rights lawyers. Karina Moskalenka uh, has received uh, her legal education in the same department of law of the St. Petersburg University that has been uh, also uh, 
So two other uh, people mentioned by me earlier, uh, Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medvedev. But we can see that uh, the same educational institution can produce quite uh, distinctive results. Uh, Karina Moskalenka represents almost uh, all uh, visible and the most visible cases in uh, recent Russian uh, history of defending of human rights. Karina Moskalenka defended uh, victims of North Northost Sietosiech in year 2002, members of family of uh, murdered journalist Anna Politkovskaya, uh, political activist and political leader Gary Kasparov, uh, world chess champion, and also, and this is one of the most visible cases, uh, Karina Moskalenka is defending uh, Mikhail Kadrakovsky and Platon Lebedev in their, uh, uh, in their trial, in the already second trial in Russia. Uh, Karina Moskalenka has established in 1995 the International Protection Center for defending not only these uh, very high-profile cases, but hundreds and thousands of Russian citizens and trying to defend them not only in Russia, but also in European Court of Human Rights. Uh, Karina Moskalenka has deserved a lot of awards, uh, even domestically, even in year 2000 and early on, and internationally. But she also deserved very special attention from the Russian authorities. Her center has been uh, threatened with bankruptcy, and she herself uh, has been threatened with disbarment from uh, lawyer profession. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Karina Moskalenka in her remarks here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a big, big honor to be in this famous institute. And uh, with uh, how Andre uh, represent me, I, I, I couldn't feel if this is me, my, uh, myself. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, some uh, of he, he, he said I, I have uh, immediately support. Another views I would try to maybe defend my country, uh, um, even my authorities, because they are trying their best to stop our activity. They are trying to establish um, non-rule of law country, but they still uh, fail. Uh, failed. It means that we still keep working. And it does mean something. Uh, we still uh, save people of death sometimes. Uh, we sometimes represent them or try and represent them effectively and do not allow them and put them in uh, um, life sentence uh, for say, uh, serving in Siberia. We still defend uh, human rights defenders, which now are uh, very much uh, needed in that. And uh, even um, opposition leaders like Gary Kasparov, Lev uh, Panimarov, uh, and other uh, people trying to demonstrate their disagreements with the order which uh, current authorities are trying to establish in my country. So we have uh, something to do, and we uh, still resist the uh, attempts to, um, uh, to illuminate rule of law in my country. We still have constitutional court, uh, or the rest of constitutional court, because some uh, people die, some people retired, or 
they were assisted to retire. Uh, and somebody uh, just recently, uh, and the most uh, prominent members of the Constitutional Court, just left it because of impossibility to remain in this body. But still, we have Constitutional Court and the Constitution, and the Russian Constitution is remaining like it was uh, uh, created in 90s, when we had uh, really much hope that our country is going to be a rule of law country. We still have habeas corpus, a judicial review of the uh, all the um, decisions on somebody's detention. The problem is that after the prosecution, the courts uh, started to do the same bad work and uh, bad assessment on the, uh, um, uh, the question if this person or that person have to stay in prison in uh, pretrial detention, which is a big problem for Russia. Almost all um, uh, um, uh, accused uh, have to wait their judgment, their judgment in criminal case in prison, and this is something really abnormal, and this is contradict to these internationally recognized um, standards. Uh, we still have uh, uh, the law, uh, both in criminal and civil uh, laws, um, that every violation of human rights can be appealed to the court. Still, our courts are not uh, ideal, but uh, it is something people can, can go, uh, they can bring their um, uh, arguments, and the court have to produce the judgment which means that everything has to be motivated. And if it is poorly, motiv um, um, poorly motivated, uh, people still have the right to appeal this uh, to the higher uh, level of court, which is also not very effective, but it does exist. And uh, eventually, we have the free access to the European court of human rights, which I'm sure here in the United States uh, is not a very popular idea, <clears throat> but it gives uh, my people, Russian people, my clients, uh, the possibility in a very, very in, in the most uh, hopeless situations to appeal to this court uh, and defend their human rights, including the right to fair trial. If you would be interested uh, how effective uh, this remedy uh, is, I would be happy to answer. So uh, maybe this is the last good word about my authorities. I, 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 I was trying my best. I made a list of uh, positive <clears throat> Uh, positive moments uh, 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 around us, uh, and then I have to stop because uh, um, you can call, of course, uh, this is uh, absence of rule of law. I would be more, uh, try to be more politically correct to say this is a lack, lack, lack of rule of law, lack of independence of judiciary, lack of the uh, legal representation uh, of people in our country, lack of legal aid, uh, everything lack, 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 um, and uh, eventually it's a lack of protection for individuals. But still, 
those principal people who want to defend themselves, they are still welcome to our center. Our International Prote Protection Center is really effectively working mechanism. Um, maybe you are right that the authorities uh, don't like us anymore. But, uh, you know, they gave up when they started all this um, uh, strange uh, accusations of uh, tax evasions and uh, attempts to disbar our lawyers and start the criminal, uh, even criminal investigation on our activity when we represent people before the European Court of Human Rights. But the European Court was very persuasive to uh, describe in the uh, judgments uh, how um, lawyers represented uh, clients uh, applicants uh, before the European Court suffered with the uh, uh, harassment and uh, other forms of um, inter interference uh, and how they um, finally defended us and defended our right to represent uh, applicants without any hindrance because this assault not our right but the applicant's right to be to have a free access to the European court so uh, uh, we still can uh, work and unless we uh, would be closed by the authorities we will try to keep doing uh, 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 useful things for Russian people. That's why we say we are not, uh, our uh, complaints formally uh, is like, uh, like Ivanov versus Russia or Petrov uh, um, uh, contra Russie, uh, but we say we are for Russia, for uh, uh, Russian people, for protection of their human rights, and so we are not doing anti-Russian activity. We, vice versa, we we defend Russia of uh, those who are trying to abuse their power. Uh, maybe because of uh, this, uh, many people to, uh, many people come to us in a very in the most difficult situation. Uh, that is how my friend. Gary Kasparov became my client. Uh, that is how my friend Bob Amsterdam became my client. And I think he would probably um, describe the, the situation uh, in which he um, happened to stay in uh, Moscow one unhappy, unhappy day. Oh, we have in our center, International Protection Center, and we are very few lawyers. This uh, mostly are my former students, and now they are very, very famous lawyers uh, in Russia. In uh, some five, ten years, some of them may, uh, made a career uh, which uh, other people probably cannot dream, uh, just because they are serving our main, main uh, ideas, ideals, and... Um, uh, eventually rights of people. Uh, so our priorities are uh, torture cases, and we have plenty. Uh, torture means, uh, uh, um, I mean, in, in Russian context, um, abuses in poli police abuses, uh, conditions of uh, uh, detention for, um, uh, during the uh, especially preliminary uh, detention, pre-trial detention, uh, and also um, cases, uh, a group of cases uh, in Chechnya where people were uh, killed or tortured or disappeared uh, after some suffering, and now 
there is a strong practice of the European Court of Human Rights that even their relatives, not only them, if uh, they died, um, uh, also are victims of torture because um, there is a concept uh, on torture uh, when the relatives suffer uh, um, after their lovers been killed or uh, disappeared. Uh, other priorities? Uh, pre-trial detention, length of pre-trial pre -trial detention, like in uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky case, we were uh, quite su su successful. Uh, in, uh, European court normally uh, um, uh, have cases for many, many years, but we already have Mr. Platon Lebedev uh, decision uh, and judgment, uh, final judgment, that he was wrongly kept in prison and uh, there were some uh, periods of, uh, of pure uh, illegal detention. And uh, on Mikhail Khodorkovsky, we have already a, a decision on the admissibility of this case, and uh, it's coming, really coming judgment uh, on the matter. And I think the, the cases are very similar. That would be found. And what the uh, Supreme, Court, Supreme Court of the Russian Federation suddenly uh, did uh, this month, they started uh, to reverse to, revi to revise, revise, I think, uh, the past decisions on Lebedev's uh, detention, and they decided that he was in, in custody uh, unlawfully. In some occasions, uh, rulings were um, uh, wrong. I mean, it's too late. He already served this uh, time in, in prison. But uh, the uh, new legal approach is very, impo uh, uh, is very important. We have some uh, uh, high politically motivated cases where the persecution of people takes place. And uh, uh, it's not only uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky and Platon Lebedev. Uh, it's a group of so-called spies um, uh, who were uh, been uh, accused uh, was committing uh, sp sp espionage, but they were not uh, spies. They were just uh, uh, researchers or um, diplomats. Or I mean, uh, they contacted uh, foreigners and uh, suddenly uh, uh, um, the FSB appointed them to be um, uh, uh, criminals and spies. Uh, we have quite a lot of such cases. I mean, five, seven cases. It's already a lot, a lot. Then uh, uh, we defend uh, uh, people who want to have in our country freedom of expression and freedom of association. I have already mentioned Lev Ponomarev and Gary Kasparov and some others, Kozlovsky. I mean, we represent those people which went to the street in a peaceful demonstration or uh, uh, some other events uh, to protest against the uh, wrongdoing of the government as they understand that. Um, they never violated any rules, but they were imprisoned. And for Gary Kasparov, even for five days uh, of imprisonment, the um, Amnesty International uh, on the second day said that this is a prisoner of conscience, the same uh, as uh, about Lev Panamaryov. So this is also our priority. Uh, we uh, Just show me if it is... Uh, okay. I never, you know, uh, interrupt me if it is... I, I will just finish with some group of cases, and you will see why we have a quite uh, an uh, expert view on what's going on with human rights. Uh, because in most of our cases, we 
complaint against violation of Article 6 of the European Convention. This is a central article protecting uh, um, the right to fair trial, because in all case, other cases, the cases um, uh, comes uh, to the uh, court in the final stage or in the initial stage or uh, somehow, uh, and the court has to decide uh, and the judge has to decide if he is independent or she is independent uh, to decide uh, whether it was a violation of human rights. And the trials are also not uh, fair, not in civil, uh, not in civil cases, not in uh, criminal cases. In criminal cases, you visibly would find that uh, um, procuratura dominates uh, always the prosecution office and representatives of the prosecution office. Uh, and they dominate not only uh, over their um, defense, um, but also over the court. And we had very important now only one case where we, we represented the uh, interests of a former Russian judge, uh, Olga Kudeshkina. And Olga uh, was so brave uh, that uh, when she was a uh, subject of pressure from the um, President, judge, and the Procuratura General. She opposed to that. She was uh, fighting for her independence. And then Ms. Kudeshkina was uh, um, uh, dismissed from this case. And that was very uh, high-profile uh, corruption case. And then uh, she went to public, and she disseminated the information about the mechanisms of uh, uh, in, in interference. And it seemed to be a very important public issue. And the public of any country has uh, the right to uh, know about the, how the uh, judicial system is functioning. But she was disbarred on the uh, basis of uh, rules of uh, um, judge's ethic, which does not allow to go, to, uh, to go publicly and to blame the uh, judicial authorities. The European Court, in the first case, I think it is the first case in Europe, where they uh, supported the judge in her attempts to reach the public attention, to bring the public's, uh, public's attention to the uh, uh, very important public problem. And um, uh, they found it's um, this dismissal uh, uh, of her from her office uh, wrong, unlawful, uh, uh, and um, um, and balanced uh, reaction on her action. And the European Court that, uh, said that judges, on some occasions, they also have freedom, they, they have freedom of expression. Um, um, just two words about the uh, main priority of our case. Killings, political killings, killings of civilians in conflict, uh, killings of journalists, uh, human rights defenders. This is the most uh, difficult category of cases. You are not in a, in a position and you have no uh, enough proofs sometimes that the authorities are involved in that. And what helps us, again, the European Court strong case law, which says that if the authorities failed to protect somebody's right, uh, lives, um, if the authorities after the crime failed to investigate properly and effectively, they still 
are responsible for viol in violation of right to life from the side of positive obligation on right to life, uh, obligation of the state or, and state representatives. Uh, with this concept, we started to fight in, in, in defense of the interest of Anna Politkovskaya family. Uh, with Anna, we worked a lot on Chechen cases, on Nordost case, uh, which you, uh, Andre, uh, mentioned uh, in your presentation. Um, this is the death of many, uh, uh, more than 130 people in Moscow theater when the authorities uh, leaving apart all the strange questions concerning, concerning this ca case, they didn't want to negotiate uh, with the hostage takings, uh, saying that uh, the prestige of the Russian Federation is higher, and we lost so many nice people in this drama. And we are trying to prove that their right to life been violated by the authorities who, who first of all, haven't prevented this type, this type of crimes. Um, then they haven't organized the uh, uh, medical, uh, um, proper medical assistance to people. And they probably couldn't because the special service never informed the uh, medical staff about what kind of gas or substance, uh, better to say, uh, they used against those terrorists, forgetting that a thousand people are sitting in the same theater. And uh, they, uh, the, the hostages, were suffered first of all, and even those survivors still suffer, and they still suffer of do not knowing the truth. And after all, um, uh, the very using of this curse, we found a violation of human of right to life, even not the, from the positive uh, uh, side of the positive obligation, but even negative obligation to not uh, kill people. And after all, uh, they haven't investigated properly, and this is part of our complaint as well. So, some other cases, but this is the main. Oh, sorry. Should I stop at this moment? I mean, I always prefer, I'm a practicing law. I'm not a professor, I'm not a politician, I'm not an economist, I'm not a um, publicly, uh, always publicly speaking person. I, I love to <laughs> answer a very concrete question if you have any. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. Uh, we have uh, another uh, witness in these hearings, uh, Robert Amsterdam. Uh, Robert Amsterdam is a very well-known person. Uh, he is the founding partner of the law firm Amsterdam and Perov, specializing in international business law and politically complex cases um, uh, with offices based in Toronto, Washington, and London. This firm has been founded in 1980, and since then, uh, Robert Amsterdam and his networks and official aides have been um, involved in many landmark cases involving uh, the overlap between public and private sectors uh, working almost across the whole world. 
from uh, Nigeria to Russia and to many other countries. Uh, there are many uh, clients, very well-known uh, clients, from Price for the House uh, Coopers to Four Seasons Resort and Hotel Groups. In year 2003, uh, Mr. Amsterdam uh, was retained uh, by the Yukos Company uh, in Russia for defense of Platon Lebedev in Mikhail Kadarkovsky. And this probably was one of the uh, give a very special uh, personal experience to um, uh, Mr. Amsterdam because in year 2005 uh, he has faced a um, uh, face-to-face encounter with, um, I would not say law enforcement, I would say power enforcement uh, people from secret, uh, security services. Okay, nevertheless, it gives um, a very valuable um, experience. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, law in, in Russia. Uh, but uh, Mr. Amsterdam is uh, defending uh, Mikhail Kadarkovsky and Platon Lebedev since then. Also, he is involved in a number of other uh, cases uh, around the world. In year 2008, he was retained by the Venezuelan bank and political prisoner Eligio Sedenia, who was just released uh, into freedom this past December. This is another victory for uh, Mr. Amsterdam. Also, um, uh, uh, Robert uh, is representing the leader of the Democratic Opposition in Singapore, uh, Dorke Chi Sun Yuan, and the former minister of Abuja, Nigeria, Nasir Erufal. Uh, Robert Amsterdam is a very famous blogger, and his blog, Rob, robertamsterdam.com, one of the uh, most uh, popular uh, blogs on Russia in English language. Robert, you have your floor. <coughs> Firstly, <clears throat> I, I want to say what an honor it is to be here. What an honor it is to be here among a number of my personal heroes. Uh, Andre, it goes without saying, Karina is someone uh, whose heroism and whose unique position in her country defending human rights is almost without parallel the number and complexity of her cases and her consistent success at the European Court of Human Rights is a beacon for all the world about what one person can do. In our audience today is Oleg Kozlovsky, one of the great uh, Russian uh, fighters for civil rights in Russia. Oleg, why don't you stand? And I, I'm not going to make him stand, but right there is Charles Krauss, one of the great journalists of the United States and someone whose heroism on the streets of Russia is an untold story, but a very powerful one that unites Karina and I in admiration. I am going to speak about Russia in a way that deals first with some of the policy issues because I am in the home of the reset button. And I'm trying to figure out who we are resetting with. Because the people that she's fighting seem to be the same people that we're talking to. Now, are they the same people? Because if they're the same people, they are pretty scary. And I can tell you as an American who's been arrested at 2 in the morning by the KGB, these are the same folks. They don't have nice days and bad days. Clearly, I was on a bad day. They, they actually have a system 
of intimidation and corruption, the likes of which actually form a model for other countries. What Russia has based on its resource economy, we see being tracked in Venezuela, we see similarities with Iran, and we need to wake up and smell the coffee. Because our reset button is the best thing that's ever happened to the Siloviki since the war on terror. Since the war on terror let us go quiet about what was happening in Chechnya, this is the next best thing. Because we are essentially saying we don't care about Magnitsky, we don't care about Markelov, we don't care about Politkovskaya, we don't care about Chechnya, we don't care about Dagestan, we don't care about Nord-Ost, we don't care about Beslan, we care about ourselves. And those values and those principles upon which our country was founded don't apply outside this border. And Russian people, we will instrumentalize you if we think it makes us five minutes safer from those scary guys in Tehran. We will instrumentalize you. We will forget you're dead. We will not say the words of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. We won't embarrass these folks who jail people arbitrarily, consistently, day after day after day. Igor Sechin, you are safe. You are safe in Venezuela. You are safe making deals with Iran. You are safe in Nicaragua because we're worried about something else. And when we talk about rule of law, we need to understand that there was a great Russian who lit the light for all of us. His name was Sakharov. And Sakharov made one fundamental statement about life. The way a country treats its citizens is the way it will treat its neighbors. Its domestic policy and its foreign policy are tied. And it wasn't only Sakharov, it was another Russian named Lenin who made the same point. You can't make this break between domestic and foreign policy. Legally, from a policy standpoint, Russia is a dual state. Now, the dual state concept was developed by Ernst Frankel in respect to another country, but I used it in a law review article in 2007 to describe Russia. A dual state is a country where there is a pattern of legalism consistently working with a, within a pattern of authoritarianism. And so you ask the question, which, which side is correct? Is the prerogative state, the state which emanate, from which emanates the KGB and the FSB, is that state the state or is the legalistic state, the state of the courts, the state of the European Court of Human Rights, and by the way, I don't want to, and this is the, the, the strange thing, I don't want to minimize the importance of the European court. It is important. Russians are aware of it. They have to be aware of it because the conviction rate in Russia is 99.2%. In some places in Siberia, it's over 100%. How that happened, I don't know. I figure, I figure they just keep you longer. But when you are arrested, you know there is a 99.2% chance that you will be convicted. Robert, uh, when you think 997 yeah. 99.7. I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm correct. I stand corrected. So, the, and the issue, the issue that you don't get when you read this brilliant article that just came out by Alexei Trochev, which I recommend to all of you, 
All appeals lead to Strasbourg. What you don't get is the reality of the Russian court. And the reality of the Russian court, you don't get it unless you smell it. You don't get it unless you feel it. And I'm going to quote from Sergei Magnitsky, the lawyer for Browder, horribly murdered in jail just a few months ago. I'm going to quote from him because this is, if you don't hear this and you just talk about law and Strasbourg, you don't get the sense of what people deal with once you're caught in this gulag-like existence. Sergei says, people being judged are hungry and tired and have been exhausted by confinement in prison boxes and the journey in the vehicles. This is especially damaging to those that have to take part in court hearings that last for several days in a row. Of course, to defend yourself effectively in court under such conditions is impossible. I have heard from many prisoners that they would rather agree to not take part in court hearings than suffer on the days when they are transported to court. It is in Russia the devil that is in the details. The devil is in the phone on the desk of the chairman of the Moscow City Court, Judge Yegorova, who we all know is in communication with the Kremlin, who we all know is critical, as are so many of the chairmen, in determining the outcomes of their cases. You're never going to hear it. You're never going to see it. You need to know it. Karina and I jointly invented a term in Russian called Basmani justice. Basmani justice came from a Russian rhyme that we heard lawyers who practiced there make about Karmani. And Karmani in Russian is pocket. And the idea was that Basmani court, where Khodorkovsky was held, was the pocket court of the procurators. So you've got to ask yourself, what kind of pockets you need if there's a 99.7 conviction on a bad day, but this was the pocket court. So on top of all of the other corruption, on top of the degradation of the transition to the courthouse, you have to deal with this total control. It's very hard for me when I have Karina in front of me and I think of all of the people that Karina and I knew who are now dead. I, I, because I'm not allowed into Russia, I don't think and visualize them. I knew Anna Politkovskaya. And Anna would try to describe to me how Putin works because she was afraid perhaps I'd be one of these Westerners who just didn't understand. And she said, Robert... It's a doppelganger. What they do is they charge their enemies with the very crimes they commit so that nobody understands what's really happening. Charge Khodorkovsky with tax evasion and money laundering because that's what they're doing. Charge their opponents. There was a recent uh, whistleblower, Alexei Demonsky, a whistleblower who took pictures of corrupt Russian policemen. What happened to him? Arrested for corruption. This doppelganger effect goes on and on. Is, is the situation improving? No. No, the situation is not improving. 
The level of corruption since the arrest of Khodorkovsky has risen by a multiple of 10. If the level of corruption was 30 billion in 2003, the allegation today is that it exceeds 300 billion dollars. And now there are demonstrations organized over the last number of days. 10,000 came out in Kaliningrad trying to claim Russia back. And we are going to see, and we, we in fact are starting to see, that in terms of the United States, there have to be decisions about values and principles. We cannot ignore the domestic situation in Russia. Firstly, it is contrary today to international law to ignore the plight of human beings in another country whose rights are violated. This is under the UN. Every, every agreement we've signed as Americans obliges us to make comments about the domestic affairs of Russia. Under the European Convention, it is actually mandatory for European governments to take on board the activities of what's going on in Russia today. This now is still, we're still back in the days of detente where we think we shouldn't criticize Russian domestic affairs. That's gone. And in fact, in the last number of months, in, an, in a corporate type of boardroom environment, a private group held Russia to account for its violation of the Energy Charter. This is a cataclysmic event for the Siloviki. It is an incredible, incredibly important legal document that was only released last night. Anybody interested in Russia must read this document because it demonstrates that the illegality that we talk about, the duality that we talk about in respect to the domestic situation was what Russia attempted to perpetuate in the international sphere by denying corporations rights under the Energy Charter. And in a comprehensive decision, this private panel has determined that Russia did in fact a turn to the Energy Charter that those people who suffered at the hands of the Siloviki may yet have a right to claim justice for those assets. And more importantly, those people who decided to attempt, if you would, to go beyond the hesitation of our politicians, to go beyond the reticence of states, and to take international law and use it in a creative way those people have finally brought the Siloviki to heel. And this is a massive, massive decision. So my point to all of us, and I made it in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week, is we can all, we can all impact foreign policy and human rights. If we're journalists, if we're people engaged in these issues, we can stop calling the trial of Khodorkovsky a trial. We can stop when the Iranians or the Chinese put people into a box for an hour and pretend it's a trial. We don't have to call it a trial. We can claim back our language and our grammar of human rights. We can even do it 
to be creative in respect to the United States. We can claim it back. We don't have to give it away because we're scared, whether it's of a terrorist, whether it's of Ahmadinejad, whether it's of Chavez. We need to have the courage to define our policies and values and stick to them. And we have to decide if we care about saving ourselves and our Constitution, we can wish no less for our fellow man. We cannot, again, ignore the Russian people. We cannot ignore those whose blood is spilled on the streets of Moscow because the police are brutal. We cannot afford to ignore them. We've got to tell our politicians that Russian civil society, those people that follow Sakharov, those people that helped lead to the transitions that we've all enjoyed in Europe, they cannot be forgotten, they cannot be denied, and we've got to respect them, and we've got to push aside the reset button and focus on the realities of today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. I just would pick up uh, from your words concerning uh, the reset button. Um, and it would be some kind of probably general questions, not, not only and not only uh, to you, Robert, and to you, Karina, but just to the general audience. What kind of results should we expect if we push a reset button if we're dealing with the hand of gang of thugs facing this gang of thugs, or you were facing uh, tutti capo di tutti in Italian mafia case, or you were dealing with the chief of the concentration camp. What kind of results could be expected in this particular case if we push reset button? And I have another question because uh, both Karina and Robert uh, has touched it. Uh, because if we apply, let's say, so-called economic terminology to legal issues in, uh, in the case of Russia, we would find quite a striking, uh, striking observation. Russia became uh, a very important exporter of such stuff like corruption internationally, political murders, like in the case of Alexander Litvinenko in London or former president of Chechnya Zelimhan Yandarbiev in Qatar, or even the Soviet uh, General or uh, Soviet High Military Officer Suleiman uh, Yamadaev recently in Dubai. So this is not isolated cases. This is a practice. And this is a practice that is being actually applied not only on the Russian territory. It is already applied outside the Russian territory, as Robert has mentioned. And we have seen uh, just in the daylight uh, outright international aggression of the Russian Siloviki regime against the immediate neighbor, Georgia, in August year 2008. So this is the one side of the so-called uh, current account balance in this international legal relations. On the other case, um, Russia is becoming quite a big importer of legal services from European Court of Human Rights. And it is understandable because uh, if the legal system is destroyed in the country, within the country, the demand for legal services does exist, and this demand can try to find the way. And now it has been found outside the country. What is interesting and actually strikingly interesting that the Russian authorities at least seem to try to fulfill 
if not all, but most of decisions of the European Court of Human Rights. All of them. Uh, sorry? All of them. All of them. And this is a really striking difference with the approach toward the domestic courts and even with the international, other international courts. So the, my question, probably first question, would be in this Q&A session to Karina and maybe to Robert, how would you explain this is a really different approach and different behavior on the part of Russian authorities towards different types of courts? You want me to stand? Yeah, you can sit here. Does it work? Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> somebody believes that Russian Federation, that the Russian Federation, do not follow the European Court judgments because they are avoiding to change the situation uh, in sense of the uh, measures of general character in each case, especially if we are talking about the uh, Chechen cases, because what they are doing. They pay compensation, compensations in all the cases when the European Court decided like this. And uh, they took all other measures of individual character. It's uh, the uh, main part of the judgments of the European Court to recognize the violation of somebody's right to life or right to fair trial, um, um, pay compensation, and if the person, for example, is a victim of unfair trial, then the Russian authorities have to um, retry the case and to start the uh, hearing from the very beginning. And it brings its result. But the European Court judgment uh, uh, presumes not only the measures of individual character, which I repeat again, all been followed by the Russian authorities, all were uh, implemented. The European Court judgments uh, um, presume that the authorities would try to avoid the uh, uh, similar violations in future. So they have to demonstrate uh, that they took some measures of uh, the general character, uh, change the law, change the administrative practice, or uh, create some uh, conditions to avoid uh, similar violations in f future. If this has not happened, then the country still is in the list of those who are not followed the judgment. So this is uh, the situation with the Russian authorities, and not only with the Russian authorities. Uh, uh, to whom the authorities have to report? They report to the very, very important body at the Council of Europe. This body calls Committee of Ministers. Committee of Ministers check all the implementations of the judgments of the European Court. The European justice costs a lot of money, and the Council of Europe don't want, uh, the organization doesn't want that uh, this money was spent for just one case and just measures of in the individual character. Now they care with uh, Protocol 14. Uh, uh, it's one of the instruments to uh, speeding the uh, case hearings and 
to uh, make uh, the implementation of judgments more effective. Uh, now I, I hope the situation will be, uh, will be changed. That's why the Russian authorities tried to avoid two years the only country after 46 countries ratified the convention, um, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, protocol to the convention, they uh, um, remained un uh, signed but uh, not ratified. This January, uh, our country have done it, uh, and uh, we have many hopes that it will work more effectively. Uh, I don't know. And Andre, you, you are staying, I am sitting. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. My question, if I am allowed to put question, uh, Robert Amsterdam today uh, called the Americans to work internationally. That's true that uh, according to all the international uh, and uh, uh, norms and standards, the country has to react. Uh, the country cannot um, uh, extradite the person to, the, uh, to another country where he can face uh, unfair trial. That's why many UKIS people uh, were not extradited from uh, London, from Cyprus, from other countries, uh, because the, the, the authorities of the country has, have to care about what would be what would happen with uh, people in other days. Um, the country is not allowed to extradite people to those countries where torture is normal practice uh, of the uh, penitential system in the country. So there are some international obligations and if uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the generally recognized principles are violated by that or this country uh, authorities, the countries have to react. But my question is, Bob, do you, and I hope you do, <laughs> do you realize that um, if the United States starts to criticize the, um, the situation with human rights in, for example, my country, or in Nigeria, or in Latvia, or everywhere, uh, then the United States themselves, they could be criticized uh, uh, the same way for the violations which uh, uh, happened in any country, including the United States. There are no ideal countries, I know that for sure. I know it from the human rights activists in this country. Uh, are you ready that situation with uh, human rights in some cases would be criticized by the outside world? I hope that yes, but if your leaders stay stay apart from these obvious violations of human rights in my country, then I would think that you are afraid uh, to be criticized and uh, uh, something is going wrong in your country. Or otherwise, uh, act, please. Let's hear what Robert would answer to your question. Look, I think that uh, we've reached a point, and quite frankly, I think it's a new low in terms of human rights um, in this country over the last number of years. But I asked the same question when I was um, debating at one point in the press with Gerhard Schroeder, who kept saying that Putin was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. And Schroeder's, Schroeder's, Schroeder's attack on me was to say, well, you know, what about Saudi Arabia? And then I tried to say that I really felt, as, as a Russophile, as someone who loves Russia, 
that trying to defend it by saying that there are worse, such as Saudi Arabia, really betrays who actually cares about Russia. And, and what I'm saying is that the United States has many faults, and we all know them, and there's a lot, a lot of things I can say about this country, but it's a work in process. We all know it's a work in process. We all know that we, ha we all have our daily grind to go through in terms of how we reach our goals. This idea, however, that for opportunistic reasons, or what the Secretary of State calls pragmatic reasons, that we should be stum, I think we're getting it back from the Chinese in spades. I think the Chinese are demonstrating that when we stay quiet, our opponents see this as a tremendous opportunity to push us around. And believe me, when your opponent believes that the real reason you're cozying up to him is not because you have common values to share, but because you're scared of another guy. And, and I, I have to say this, you know, I, I, I won't go into it now, but geopolitically I find it amusing that the United States believes that the Russians have less to fear from the mullahs than we do. Because knowing Tehran a bit, I would tell you that the proximity of Russia and the irredentist Muslim population they have should make Mr. Putin have sleepless nights. So why we would need, why we would need them for Iran is another question. So yes, I think we should be ready to take that, Karina, but I think not engaging in this, this discourse of human rights betrays Sakharov's key premise and instrumentalizes people. And I will tell you, this morning I had a discussion about another country where a leader from this other country was saying that those people who stayed quiet and, and simply were acting in complicity won't be getting the oil deals from our country. And that's another thing to think about, the future.